Well, good morning. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've been with us this semester, you know we've been going through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. And we are uh, two away from being done with 1 Peter, actually. We're almost there. And that means we're almost to the end of the semester as well. Uh, so today we're doing 1 Peter 5. We're doing the first five verses. Next week we'll do a few of the other verses in 1 Peter 5. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, you can join us uh, at 1 Peter 5, which is towards the end of the New Testament. And in this sermon series on 1 Peter, we've been seeing how Peter speaks to these young churches in Asia Minor about applying the truth of the gospel into their lives, especially to bring the hope and the holiness of the gospel into their hearts as they face, in particular, persecution. That's what we talked about last week, Rob uh, talked with us about how the church around the world faces persecution and what that has looked like from the first century till now. And here in chapter 5, at the beginning, we see that Peter lays out in a very short way the leadership structures of the church. And this is a hopeful thing, uh, especially to the churches that were undergoing persecution. It's a hopeful thing that Peter talks about how leaders and how people in the church are going to relate to one another because it means he believes the church is going to keep going. And he, he's right. We're still here 2,000 years later. Uh, he wasn't wrong. And he still gives us the same kind of leadership structure to follow today. And uh, so let's read 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, and see the leadership structure of the church. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, it just so happens that this past week we had our 2018 midterm elections. And it seemed fitting to mention that because we're talking about leadership in the church today. And what we've seen through much of this week and really way before that, for the last number of years, we've seen a lot of growing anger and tension and confusion, some ugliness in the leadership of local communities and at a national level. And as I was listening to NPR and one NPR pundit put it this way, that, that since at least 2006, I think it is, they've seen, we've seen a flip-flop in the House uh, in Congress. One of the houses, either the Senate or the House, has flip-flopped when it was all Republicans. One of them would flip back to Democrats or they'd just go back and forth. And he was mentioning how one of the things that brought up to his mind was the instability of leadership and how when you have lots of flip-flops, you're going back and forth. Just like if you work in a company, if you start to notice that there's certain jobs that never seem to get filled or they turn over a lot and they turn over quickly, usually that's indicative not just that... Uh, of the person who was working there, it's indicative of the system. Something in the system is broken that makes this a really hard job to do and people keep leaving it. Or 
People keep flip-flopping back and forth, hoping, well, this party will make it better next time. That party will make it better this time. And so th- this is a, the place that we find ourselves in. We've heard all week, uh, really much longer, how these midterms, some were saying, will decide the future of America, which seems maybe a little too, too high of a thought. But deciding the future of America for years and years to come. And it is true that these things shape our lives. And what, uh, for years and years, from politics to business to, mil- to the military, uh, to your family, to how you run a company, people have seen the importance of leadership. No one's surprised by that. People recognize that leadership speaks to, how a good leadership speaks to the overall health and welfare of people and families and communities and na- nations and governments. You know, just look how many leadership conferences there are. And you'll see that people think leadership is really important. And so in this early church where Peter is speaking into, they thought the same. But this is at a time when Christians were being persecuted by the government or by their pagan neighbors. And Peter's telling these young churches that Jesus offers a very different kind of leadership than what they would typically see in the world around them. And that's still true for us today. There was just as much political and religious tension, anger, and confusion in Peter's day as there is today. And yet Peter believes the church will go on. And the way that it will go on is walking by faith in God, who leads us. He's the first leader. He calls Jesus the chief shepherd. You see that in verse 4? The chief shepherd will appear again. Jesus will come back. But while he is away, in a sense, he leads through his leaders here in various levels and capacities of leadership. And this is, this is the way that church leaders and church members are to, to go together. So what we see is the passage, we'll break it down into a couple parts. But the first section is really about how do church leaders lead? And the next part is, well, how does everybody else respond to that? And we'll spend the bulk of our time on church leaders and how they lead. And I'll tell you why that's important to you as well. Not even if you don't think of yourself or you're not a church leader currently, is that you will, uh, you will likely have some source or some place where you lead at some point. And the model that's given here isn't to say the way the church does things should be the same in business, but we're really getting at the heart of leadership. And what Peter's driving towards is servant leadership. And so this applies everywhere anybody leads, especially then if you're a Christian and you lead somewhere. He's talking about how to lead anywhere. And he says, essentially, we could put this against what we see in our society, what Peter was seeing in his society, and what he writes here. There's two ways to lead. The default model of leadership in the world is essentially pride-based or selfish leadership. It's done in pride because it's a desire really to be served, to gain from others. And that's the main threat to leadership in the early church, and it's the main threat to leadership today, is is pride. But he says there's a biblical model of leadership, which is servant leadership, and this delivers us from pride and then frees us then to humbly serve others. This is what he wants us to see. So we face that choice of either letting the default model of leadership pervade our churches and ourselves and everywhere we go, or we let ourselves be reshaped by this biblical model of servant leadership in how we relate to the world and to one another here in the church. So as Christians, this is what we decide. Every day we sort of have to decide this, if we will lead as servants or if we will lead for ourselves. Will we lead as servants or will we lead for ourselves. 
And sadly, this isn't a question just for out there. This isn't a question just for uh, families. It isn't a question just for business leaders. It isn't a question just for military or government leaders. For while we can talk of the political tensions and the struggles that we face nationally, uh, we also can't deny that the church has experienced tumult, lots of struggle, lots of difficulty in the last number of years. How many times in the news have we heard about things concerning Catholic priests or prominent evangelical megachurch pastors being accused of assault or of moral failings? Have we personally seen churches split? Maybe you're one of these people who has seen your church, the church you grew up in, splits apart because people that you love are fighting with one another about how to do something. You can see local church staff uh, divide because of differences uh, around how to do certain church practices. Or you see church members like yourselves who might quarrel or gossip or slander one another, and that fails to build one another up. Wherever we go from any level of leading, we, we at least are leading ourselves, if not many other people and people that we relate to. See how we lead, how we interact, and it matters because we are either causing harm or we are bringing the hope and the holiness and the honor that we've been looking at all through 1 Peter, the way that Peter calls us to honor one another, the way he calls us to live into the hope of Christ, the way he calls us to submit ourselves to growth in holiness, to the ways of Jesus. We're either doing that or we're harming each other in a different way through our pride. But Peter gives leaders and followers alike really good news here. It's that we aren't first to look at worldly practices of leadership, and we're also not to look just at the failings of the church, but to the chief shepherd. The place we're to look is to the chief shepherd. I don't know if you've had this conversation with people before, and we're like, well, you know, I don't really like the church. There's a bunch of hypocrites in the church, and I, so I don't really go to church because I don't, I don't know. I think that it seems like Jesus says one thing and a bunch of his people are doing something else. And I often feel like I need to say something like, that's absolutely right. The church is full of hypocrites. That's pretty much why we're the church, because we're, we're trying to admit that we are hypocrites. And we're saying we can't live up to it. But we look to the one who has. Our hope is not in our own actions and behaviors, per se, even though we do hope that they grow and they change and they develop into uh, the fruitfulness of holiness that Jesus desires. And so we might have those conversations, but the point of it is to say, look, you don't want to judge Christianity by the church's leadership, per se. You want to judge church leadership by Christianity. It's that we want to all be conforming more fully into the things that Christ has given to us. And so when we only look at, well, everyone makes mistakes, that church, they just make a lot of mistakes, so therefore the church is worthless. We might be missing that the church is the place that tries to take people who have made mistakes and have failed and yet calls them into a place where by grace they can actually grow into hope and holiness. And it usually takes a while. So we're submitting ourselves to this process that the chief shepherd is leading us on a journey, showing us how to become servant leaders who are freed to humbly serve others. So borrowing from a guy named David Helm, I like this outline that he gave for this, and I use a couple of his words here, to look at this passage, three things we're going to look at. The elder's role, the elder's readiness, and everybody else's responsibility. So 
the elders' role, the elders' readiness, and everybody else's responsibility. What, is it, what does it mean for leaders of the church to lead, and what does it mean for others, everyone else, to relate to one another and to the leaders? That's what we're getting at. So first, the elders' role usually says, chapter 5, verse 1, and part of verse 2, I exhort or urge the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Well, what is an elder and what are they to do? An elder, Peter's not merely talking about older people. He doesn't just mean the elderly. Uh, Elder is the most common title for church leadership in the New Testament. And in the first century, early Christian Uh, the early Christian church continued a structure of leadership from Jewish synagogues, which continued that structure of leadership from ancient Israel when God had formed his people and he gave them elders. And the elders were to shepherd. They were to oversee the people of the community. And they were typically, uh, they were typically older. They weren't necessarily young. They weren't like teenagers. They were usually older men who were respected and had good standing and good character in their communities. And they were called to take responsibility for the spiritual and practical leadership of the church. And straight away, Peter tells us the main role of an elder, of this role in the church, shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Elders shepherd God's people. And in saying this, Peter is tying the office of elder to a very long-standing biblical image that's woven throughout Scripture. God attributes great importance to how his leaders lead. And one of the main ways he's described it throughout the scriptures is to shepherd. The role God assigns his leaders is to shepherd. So what does it mean to shepherd the flock of God that is among you? I think this is a beneficial question for all of us, even if you think, well, I'm not an elder. Uh, I'm not a church leader right now. It's certainly beneficial for church leaders to know. And it's certainly beneficial for anyone who might aspire to one day become a leader in the church to know. But it's also important for all of you to know because as this works in churches, you will be electing or calling into office, in a sense, your elders, the people who will lead your church. And you will become those who get to choose and you get to walk with people who then might become church leaders. So it matters to know what are we looking for? What is the type of thing God is seeking to craft in his church? There's many places where the Bible, in the Bible where God calls his leaders to be shepherds. And this is essentially a form or a word for servant leadership. And the one, one of the major places you'll see this among many is the prophet Ezekiel. And there you'll see that there was a lot of trouble with the shepherds, just like there are a lot of trouble at times with leadership today. It wasn't that different. And this is what it says in Ezekiel 8. Ezekiel, God is describing to Ezekiel the elders of the day. And in chapter 8, verse 9, he says that they are committing vile abominations. And in verse 12, he says, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? For they say, the Lord does not see us The Lord has forsaken the land. The elders are, this passage is really about idolatry. And the elders, the leaders, are leading the people to worship false gods. And the reason why God gives here is they think the Lord does not see us and the Lord has forsaken us. Right? So here's where where the problem starts. C.S. Lewis once said that pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. And essentially, that's what's happening to these elders, caught up in some form of pride or their inability to see beyond themselves or their own desires. They think 
God's not here. God's not for us. God's left us. We, we're gonna, or we're going to do whatever we'd like to do. It's a complete anti-God state of mind. C.S. Lewis would also describe how uh, people with pride want pleasure. And it's not that you want to be, uh, people want to be rich or they want to be smart or they want to be good looking. He says, no, it's competitive by nature. We want to be richer or smarter or better looking than the next person. And that's what pride is really about. It's the comparison that makes it pride. And more than anything, pride wants power. Because pride, power is what pride really enjoys. There's nothing that makes someone feel superior to others as being, to, being able to move them about in a way as you so desire. And this is exactly what God gets most mad about in the Bible. If you go fast forward in Ezekiel to Ezekiel 34, God is furious at what he calls false shepherds who are leading his people astray. And what he says in verses 1 to 10 of that chapter, he condemns them for exploiting people. He says, you're using them for your own gain, for your own pleasure, instead of caring for them as you should. And then in verses 11 to 16, he says, I will take this into my own hands. I will shepherd my people. What he said in verse 2 of Ezekiel 34 is that the shepherds, the false shepherds, are feeding themselves when they should have been caring for others. That is the kind of power grab or greedy gain that happens in bad leadership. Seeking to get, when you're in leadership and you're seeking to get or to make things as you think they should be apart from what others need or might need in order to be cared for. And so God calls us to be on guard against that in ourselves and he calls us to be on guard against that in others who might disrupt our congregation. But God says he wants to reverse that pattern. His goal is to reverse it. He wants to seek out the scattered, gather the people and feed them with good things again, ensure that they live protected and secure. This is what he says in Ezekiel 34, 15, and 16. He says, I myself will shepherd the sheep. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. The fat and strong I will destroy. He's talking about the false shepherds who've made themselves wealthy off of other people. I will feed them in justice. So here's what we see essentially then. The main task of the pastor, the main task of an elder or any church leader is to care for the sheep, is to care in the same way that God cares. That means seeking people when they've gone lost or bringing them back when they've been injured or hurt or wounded in some way, whether it's emotional or psychological or spiritual. It's helping give them care and security in Christ by giving them God's promises. These are the kind of things that God calls them to, calls leaders to in the church. So through our ministry then, we're concerned with providing what God has said in his word must be provided for the sheep so that, so that we can build one another up. So in a proper kind of shepherding process, the hope is that Christians under the care of good pastors and elders would thoroughly learn what, what is the fellowship of the church and how does Jesus rule and what is the ministry that he does in order to give his rule to us and to provide us with his care. This requires us to see what he's given us in the word and it also means that no church leader, no servant leader of any kind anywhere can do any type of thing like this without having good character, without uh, shepherding, with good character like God does. So that's the role of the shepherd, 
to do the kind of things that God does for his people, to do them in the small everyday ways, though God does them in the small everyday and the big ultimate ways. We, don't, we, don't, we aren't him, but we get to be like him in how we lead. This leads us to what we'll call the elders' readiness. In verse 2, uh, the word willingly can also mean readily. So what, what is an elder? What is a church leader? What is a servant-hearted servant leader called to do? So if, if there's a sense of shepherding and caring for those around you, then what does this mean? And he doesn't give us a list of things to do. There are places in 1 Timothy 3 and the book of Titus where you see some things that that an elder or a church leader is supposed to be able to do. But the vast majority of things listed are not tasks. They are actually heart attributes. They are character traits. This is what it says. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. First Peter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And he describes this further. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Readiness is not first about what the elder, or what the church leader, or what the servant leader does. It's about how they do it. It's about how they go about it. Peter says, he's describing this other aspect, this aspect of shepherding that means exercise oversight, which really means this. Give your attention and, your, and accept the responsibility for the care of those around you, is what he's saying. So if the shepherd cares for the flock, now he's saying, organize yourself. Exercise oversight. Organize yourself. Organize your attention. Organize how you run your life so that it is a gift to others. And then he gives us, as we'll see in a moment, uh, three contrasts of the way that something impairs our ability to do that and then the way that we actually can do that well. But first I want to I say that this idea of exercising oversight, to organize your life, to care for others, uh, it's a weighty thing. It's a weighty thing for anybody who has to offer care to anyone. And it's certainly a, th- a weighty thing within the church. I was thinking about the weight of pastoring uh, this week. And I'll tell you firsthand that to think that this, and once as things we're talking about, this is my job description, is very intimidating sometimes. It can be very overwhelming. Just in the past week, I was feeling the weight of what it is to pastor, to shepherd. I had a phone call with a parent who was worried about what to do with their student who was severely depressed, and she was concerned that uh, her student was going to harm themselves. I had multiple conversations with people who are deeply struggling with their faith in an age of skepticism and confusion about, well, what is truth anyway? Can we really even know? Why should we trust anything? I had a text message from a student telling me that they had self-harmed again, but it had been now a couple weeks and they were seeing that God was bringing some good things into their life. I had the joy of helping seniors think about the upcoming transitions that are happening when you graduate. But at the same time, in trying to do some work to prepare for that, I talked to an alumni, several alumni, who are struggling, who are in their new job, and they're still struggling with the transitions. They're struggling with the new place that they live. And they're uh, disconnected, and some, one of them wasn't particularly disconnected from church community and really feeling the weight of that. I talked uh, with some who one of our former students is currently now in jail. But I heard a story of another student who I talked with who is giving up some things he would really like 
in order to go be a missionary because he's heard God's call. This is what it's like week by week in a way. The ups and downs, the joys and sorrows of life together. This is what he said, right? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. These are the kind of things that happen among us. Did you know that? What's happening in your life? That's what we get to care about with one another. What does it take to walk through the joys and sorrows of life with other people in the body of Christ? The work is a privilege. It's also a weight. It's both at the same time. How do we do it? You know, my responsibility and the responsibility of our staff here is to be ready every day. It's to give attention, right? Exercise oversight. Be ready to give your full attention, to be able to give your care to the things that come up among us. I'm to be ready to extend the care of Christ to every individual that I can. And sometimes that means giving comfort. Sometimes it means calling out sin that's destructive to your life. Sometimes it means calling to repentance. Sometimes it means calling back to Scripture and relearning the promises and the practices of God. Sometimes it means creating space to grieve a loss or a pain or uh, an abuse from the past. Sometimes it means crying out to God together in prayer. Many of the times it means all those things in some form or combination. And the thing about it is it can feel overwhelming to me as well because I'm not the fixer. I'm not the healer. I am not the savior. My job as a pastor is only to mediate the one who does all those things to the utmost of anyone's ability. He can, I can't. But our job is to bring one another, and you do this with each other, is to bring one another into contact, into contact with the one who does all the greater things because we are not the healers or the fixers. And, you know, sometimes I wake up and I think, I'm not ready. I am not ready to do this today. Did you know, I mean, I hope you do, that we who lead from the front here and we who do this work here at Campus House, we definitely have our own sins. And we have our own temptations. We have our own cares. We have our own concerns and our own questions. We have our own doubts and our own fears. We have our own struggles and our own inabilities, our own learned and unlearned uh, weaknesses and, and innate weaknesses. That's all part of our day, too. And so it can feel, at times, overwhelming. But at the same time, what I see so much is that I sit underneath the chief shepherd, too. No better than anybody else. And when I sit under him, I bring all those things to him as well. And what's so amazing is that so much of the time, it's often this me learning to bring my life, my questions, my fears, my doubts, my pains, my sorrows, my struggles, and sitting before the Lord and doing that with other people who care for me too. And then I see how the gospel gets woven into those things. It changes those things, some of them. Some of them, it mostly just changes me in them. And that's the work of the church. One of the great joys of this work is that when God ministers through me, he's often ministering to me. Is that true in your life? Do you get to minister to your friends and to others? And often when that's happening, he's going to minister to you as well. Because you and I, we in and of ourselves, do not have the ability to play this role. And to be called into it is a big thing, but it's also a good thing because he will do exactly what he wants to do in order to lead his sheep. Remember, even if all of us turned bad and became false shepherds, God said, I will lead my sheep. So we have this promise from him. 
even as we who are leaders seek with all of our heart to lead like he leads and to care like he cares. I talked with another friend last weekend who's going through a transition and was using some things I wrote several years ago about transition, and she had revisited that stuff. And I'd forgotten that she even had it, but she called out of the blue and said, I am really overwhelmed with my upcoming transition. I'm realizing there's some sorrows I haven't really grieved yet from my last thing, and now I'm starting a new job, and there's a lot going on. And I was pretty busy and feeling a little overwhelmed myself, and it was kind of a surprise phone call. So I take this call, and I'm talking, and as she's talking to me, I start talking to God. And in that process uh, of prayer, I actually felt a real tangible sense of peace and calm that really changed, I think, how I was able to go into that, because I wasn't sure I was ready to have that conversation. She was pretty distraught. And later, she sent me a message and said, you know, the perspective from Scripture that you shared and then the stories about life and the tone that you took, that helped me so much. I thought, yes, that's it. That's the thing that God did for me that then she got to receive. And it wasn't me who just was so awesome at doing that in some way. I felt inadequate to do it in the moment. And it was God by God's grace. And this is what you and I get to do with and for each other in church community. We're seeking to set a tone, an atmosphere of grace in which the stories we tell point back to the one who's leading us. The perspective we give reminds us of his promises. We're seeking to be those who do good, good ministry together, which is this real life, bringing the real life situations we find ourselves in as the raw material that God uses to lead us, to shepherd us. We get to do that with one another. We take the big picture truths of scripture and we work them into the fabric of our daily lives. That's what we're doing as the church. We're applying the gospel because that way we are learning, well, what do I do when I failed at work? or in a relationship? What do I do when I succeed? What do I do if I lose my job? What if I get my dream job? What if someone dies, or what if a baby is born? When I'm trapped in patterns of habitual sin, or when I feel incredible weight of doubt about whether God is really good and true. Pastoral work and all servant leadership work in the church is patiently bringing the gospel to bear on situations like these. Because these are our situations, and our shepherd knows them. Our shepherd knows them. God knows about them and seeks to bring growth even within the most difficult of those situations. So exercising oversight, it's about extending this same care and organizing ourselves in order to give God's care to one another so that as we encounter all of reality, we are more equipped to encounter all of reality with God, with God. Now, there's three things that get in the way of this, though, that Peter points out. And he says these three contrasting statements, right? Not under compulsion. How do you shepherd and exercise oversight? How do you be a servant leader? Well, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock, is what he says. Peter's reminding us there's three primary pitfalls that impair readiness to servant lead. And here's what they are. Duty, greed, and misuse of power. These are the very things that destroy community rather than build it up. Here's what the first one, duty. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Look, if you're a leader who's operating under compulsion, that means that the care and attention you give is really out of obligation. It feels like it's being imposed. It feels like homework. 
as something I may not want to do, but I have to do. And if we are only ready to give one another begrudging service, then our church will suffer. We will suffer. Because serving out of duty means that we're not serving out of love. Serving out of duty means that we're not serving out of love. Serving out of obligation means we're not serving out of love. Now, there is a discipline to this. We do have to do things that we don't want to do sometimes. But the way we get to do that is to be reminded of how much we are loved and how much we want to love others. Not simply saying, like, whatever, I'll do it just because I have to. It'd be like using uh, crutches when you have legs that work. It's like duty is like using crutches when you actually have legs that work. Why would you use the crutches when you have something greater than duty to motivate? You have the love of Christ. And here, Edmund Clowney is a pastor who said, the care of pastors for their flock will be proportional to their care for the Lord. It's love for Christ that will kindle compassion and care for Christ's people because they know that the people's value to the Lord is the price of his blood. This is what cultivates love, is what we see. Jesus didn't, Jesus wasn't a reluctant savior. He didn't say, well, I guess I'll go down there, help these guys out. I have to, it's in my job description. No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not God was so obligated to the world that he gave his only son. That's not a very hopeful message. God so loved, that's why he came. And so the way that we will act, the more our, our care will be able to increase towards others is to the degree that we know God's care for us. First John 4, right? It tells us that we are to love others and our love for others is based on our love for Christ, but our love for Christ is based on, for Christ loved you first. That's the only way. Jesus said in Luke chapter 7, there's a woman, he was at a dinner party with Simon the Pharisee, and Simon mistreated him. He didn't offer him even basic hospitality. And this woman comes in who's a prostitute, and she cleans Jesus' feet and uses ointment to clean uh, like his, the dirt off of, off of him, and she weeps over him. And Jesus says, Simon, you didn't offer me the duties of basic hospitality, but she offered me the love of getting down on her hands and knees and cleaning me up, essentially, my dirty feet from sandals in the dust. And what he, tells, what he says at the end, he says, look, her sins were many, but they've been forgiven, and this is why she loved much. But one who's forgiven little loves little. The degree to which we love others is really the degree to which we know how undeserving we are and yet how forgiven we've been. That's the degree to which we will love others. Because otherwise, there's sometimes this hint of duty, or as we'll see in a moment, greed, where I love other people, but really so I can get something in return. Jesus is saying, you won't love others really unless you, you see that you know, you and I create pain and problems and pressure in other people's lives. But that is not the final word. That Jesus would come and forgive us of those things. And most often, the people in our lives who know Jesus, they also forgive us. Rather than rejecting us, they stay with us. Many times, there's plenty of painful things of rejection in our lives. But so often, it's the people who look like Christ who offer this acceptance of us. It's not a duty. If it was merely a duty, we'd, we'd feel that and we'd know. They're only doing it because they have to. But he's calling us to something higher. He's calling us to do it because of love, willingly, which means of your own free will. You freely will to give yourself into this work of servant leadership. 
That's the first thing that the elders or the church leaders or anyone who's called to be a servant leader in any way is called to do. It can't just become a duty to us. It has to be born out of the love that Christ has for us that we then get to extend to others. You know, one way that this may look in our lives today in a very, very simple way is simply being present with one another. In an age of distraction where a cell phone can literally interrupt almost every single minute of your life, one of the hardest things for us to do right now is to simply give God's gracious gaze to one another, to look upon one another with a, I'm not hurried to be with you. I'm not distracted in speaking with you. I, you are telling, sometimes you're telling me things that I don't know what to do with, but I'm here. I'm not the healer or the fixer, but I will pray. I will listen. I will give my full attention. Being fully present is one of the hardest things today. I find that in myself. There's so many distractions now. To be fully present might be one of the main ways that we don't just, okay, I'll sit with people because I'm supposed to and Jesus said so and it's my duty. No, to love them is to be fully present with them. The second thing Peter talks about is greed. And he says that you're not to be doing this for shameful gain, but eagerly. So Peter notes, besides the temptation to attempt servant leadership out of duty rather than love, there's also a temptation to lead out of personal greed rather than for other people's gain. See, if you're greedy, you are not helping others gain. You are just trying to gain for yourself. Shameful gain is the idea of greed. Are we seeking leadership positions or authority or for money and material gain? Are we seeking to set ourselves up with a comfortable life at cost to others? Or are we giving ourselves eagerly, setting others up to gain, even if it's at cost to ourselves? You know, that's, that's what Jesus did, right? He already had everything. He couldn't be greedy. I mean, in a way, he, he already owned the whole universe, and yet he gave up so much. He came and took on a body to take on pain, to take on death. He gave at cost to himself. And so Peter is uh, saying that we should be setting, up our, setting ourselves up for eagerness to serve over desire to just get personal gain in some way. Shame enters when money or material gain or prestige becomes the motive of our heart. You know, my friend, um, I have a friend who a few years ago, him and his sister uh, were a part of a, a church that was a health and wealth gospel kind of church. And the way he described it to me was that the, the pastor had the nicest suit of anyone in the building. He even had bodyguards and he had a personal jet. And this, uh, my friend, had grown up Catholic. And so he'd also seen kind of like what he felt like was moralistic like rituals within the Catholic Church. So they went somewhere else. But then what he saw was somebody uh, using the gospel with hurting people to get for themselves rather than helping those people. And it really turned him off, of course, to faith and to church and to life in a community of people who might be practicing that kind of thing. And so he stopped going. Um, and he still is, is not a believer. He doesn't, he doesn't believe. Um, but I think he's right, absolutely, that that's a terrible thing. But I also think there's something that we could say, well, that seems obvious, you know, uh, the, the, the pastor, the televangelist who owns a private Learjet. That seems obvious. Maybe that is a little bit unnecessary, potentially. But are there ways in which greed, I think more often than not, isn't quite so obvious? And it can seep into our local church too. And, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul said, that 
pastors are to receive a salary. He said, church leaders are to be paid for the spiritual work they do. But there's a point multiple times where he says in his letters in 1 Corinthians that he says, uh, look, I, but I would rather not receive a salary. And at one point he says, I would rather die than not be able to preach the gospel to you. And if me taking anything from you in terms of salary is something that hinders your ability to receive the gospel, then I would rather have nothing so that you could have the gospel than to have something and you not have the gospel. He so wants people to know Jesus and be a part of the fellowship of the church that he would rather lose everything he had. And so Paul is, is an example of a way in which we want to be willing to give ourselves up. But the way that might, this might work in a more everyday basis in a typical church would be, would be when we become aware that in some ways are we building church buildings? Are we building a brand in a way of church? And in one sense, we're build, are we building an empire? It's not bad to have buildings. We are so grateful to have this building. It's not bad to have podcasts or to publish books that help other people. But the thing about those things is that sometimes as a church, we become more interested in becoming part of a cool movement of Christianity. But the heart of Christianity is costly sacrifice. You know that at the end, everyone left Jesus and fled and he died on a cross by himself because it was not cool, but it was costly. And the foundation of the church is not a cool movement but it is a costly sacrificial fellowship where we've decided it's far more worth loving one another at cost to ourselves than it is to let that love go not be given in this world. It's far better for us to do that at cost to ourselves. And so, look, if, if we, um, we've talked about how shepherds are to, to, sh- to shepherd the sheep and that looks like giving the same care that God has given And so we're saying, every one of you, we want to have the care of God in your life, to know the truths of God, to have the protection of his promises. But the thing about it is, if if you and I are fed and led and protected and cared for by our pastors and elders and church leaders, but we really just start to desire only to be merely cared for and comforted, or maybe to be part of some cool thing at church, then we might miss out on what this church really seeks to give us and what it really celebrates. The freedom to give this costly sacrificial love to one another, um, even if we don't gain for ourselves, because what we trust is that Jesus has given us all the riches of eternity already. We can't gain anything better for ourselves than him. And he's gained himself for us. That's what we're holding on to. When it says not for shameful gain or greedy gain, but eagerly, it means, again, it's the same idea as freely, that we are eagerly serving Not to get something, but to give something away. The final thing that Peter mentions is misuse of power. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Domineering is to rule over someone to your own advantage. Again, this idea of me getting and somebody else not getting because of that. It's to use power against others rather than using power for others. This is a huge issue in our society in general. We talk about this a lot. The power to lord your ways over somebody rather than bringing them into the fold, bringing them into the process. You know, the disciples struggled with this repeatedly. Jesus was often talking with them about how he was going to lay down his life, and then they would get into arguments about who was the greatest among them. And Jesus would say, well, the greatest among you must be your servant. And then he'd say, I'm going to go lay down my life for you. The greatest among you will do the same. And then they would keep arguing about who was the greatest among them. They, they were missing it. 
because their idea of power was to gain a good position for themselves. You know, it was once said of Abraham Lincoln by one of his uh, friends, if you want to find out what a man is to the bottom at his core, give him power. Any man can stand adversity, but only a great man can stand to have prosperity and power. It is the glory of Abraham Lincoln that he never abused power. When he had power, he used it in mercy. That's the kind of person he was, is what his friend was saying. And it's the kind of person Peter is telling church leaders, servant leaders to be. The kind of people that don't misuse power, but use their power to set an example. To set an example to others. They're not in it for the position or the title or some sort of prestige. They're in it because they love Jesus, not the power that he might have or give. And they they serve by the power of the Spirit, not by their own accumulated power. They're the kind of people that other people want to emulate. They want to be following after this person because they have such a depth of character that it lends weight to their authority and leadership. So what kind of force, what kind of power is that? It's not physical. It's not physical force. It's not psychological force manipulating people. It's not control over others, but it's personal self-control and deep character in relation to others. That is our power. And it only comes first, real power only comes first by submitting. Submitting ourselves to the chief shepherd who shepherds us in the first place and asking him, Jesus, would you make me self-aware? Would you sanctify me? Would you lead me into deeper truth so that I can see, I can learn more about my inner life and I can learn about how I relate with others. And you would let those things be so shaped by your presence in me and in your word that I now use my power for the good of others rather than to try to gain for myself. You might most see this come up for you in areas of tension or conflict. If you want to see how you think about power, because then you either might be tempted to have power over others and use it to dominate the discussion or to get people to shut down, or maybe you withdraw and you pull away and you don't shout people down. But even then you have power over them because by your silence, you refuse to engage rather than to work through the process of forgiveness or to to grow in being able to have real, honest discussion in community. We want to use our power for others because we become who we follow. And Peter's saying, there's some people in this world that are really worth following because they've so followed Jesus. It will make you become the kind of person Jesus is out to create as his new creations. When I was in grad school, I worked at a landscaping company for a little while to help cover the bills. And uh, I was pretty early on. I was a few weeks into working at this landscaping company. And the president of the grad school that I was at, we were doing some landscaping in his yard. Um, So his daughter was getting married. And so they were transforming the backyard to have the wedding outside. And the day that I was tasked, one of the days I was tasked to do some of the landscaping in the backyard of the president's house, uh, in the forecast, there was a chance of rain. And my boss, Eric, told me that uh, if it starts raining, just stop because the gator, that's like a little tractor thing we're using, uh, it gets stuck in the mud really easily. And this yard, he'd, he'd been there before, so he knew that the yard gets pretty muddy too. And, of course, me being me, when it started to rain, I said, well, I could probably finish this. And so I kept working. And I kept going until I got the gator stuck in the mud. And then I ripped up parts of the yard trying to get the gator out of the mud when it was just spinning in circles. And eventually it's just pouring down rain. I'm sitting there, head down, like, oh boy. 
just did everything Eric told me not to do. And then Eric comes along back from another place that he'd been. He comes back and he looks over the fence and he goes, what are you doing there? And he, I mean, you can see the ground's all ripped up. There's tire marks everywhere. And so he jumps over the fence and comes in. He says, well, let's get this out of here. So he gets the pickup truck and we tie it to the gator and pull it out of the mud. And then we get everything. We start heading back to our, our office. And I'm just waiting. I think, is Eric going to fire me? Is he going to get really mad at me? I'm only a few weeks into this. He told me something. Everything happened just like he said, and I totally didn't listen to it. I'm just waiting. And on the way, Eric just starts telling me the stories of how he got the gator stuck in the mud. And he starts telling me sometimes in his life where he messed up at work. And then he just leaves it there. I just remember being struck by this profound sense of grace that Eric was extending to me. And he made me fix the things that I messed up later. Uh, but he just, he associated with me in that. And he didn't, he didn't get mad. He didn't get angry. And Eric was someone who had a high school education, never went to college. Uh, but he was an elder in his local church. And the thing that, that stood out about him was it wasn't because he was wildly smart. It wasn't because he had advanced degrees. But everywhere he went, he exuded the presence of Jesus. So he was a leader in his church because he was amazing at extending the grace of Christ. And it's not that he didn't care for putting things right. As I said, he made me put things right. But he also did it in such a way that I thought, I want to follow Eric. I learned so much from working with him. So I went to seminary and I met with lots of pastors all the time. But one of the main people I would say had ever influenced me on how to lead well is Eric from the landscaping company because of how he, he led. And this is what he says, Peter says, is the last thing in, in verse 5. Everybody else's responsibility is to be subject to the elders. But you know, that's a difficult thing. We've talked about some what it means to submit throughout First Peter, submitting to government, submitting wives to husbands, and then husbands loving like Christ loves the church. We've talked about submitting in work to our work. We've, we've seen Peter use this word many times. But the thing about it is, I wanted to submit to Eric because Eric was someone who was so good at giving, even when I was making mistakes, was able to help me grow, was someone who watched out for me, who cared for me, who didn't reject me when I had disobeyed what he asked me to do. And the thing about this that Peter is saying is, younger people, be subject to your elders. And this might feel hard. It feels very hard in a, in a culture and a society that says, look, the last thing you should do is subject yourself to anyone. You should rather seek to get whatever you can and whatever you want. But mutual submission is the key pattern to the life of Christ's church. It's what we've been seeing over and over again in 1 Peter. And so, look, it's, it's very possible that in living this way, you and I start to become the most radical people on our block. Because so many people, uh, I'm looking at some statistics recently, in my generation and all younger, uh, atheism and being non-religious is up double, and the amount of people who say they're Christians is 4%, which means how we servant lead in the world is going to be really hard, but it's also going to be really important how you do this. 
wherever you go. And to be able to say, you know what? I do live my life in subjection to other Christians. I let my life be the subject of their prayers, be the subject of their care and concern, be the subject of their wisdom. It is the subject of them speaking truth to me when I don't even want to hear it. Yes, that is how I will live my life. I will live my life subject to other believers because it is the wisdom of God. It's the structure he's given in order for me to be cared for and to know how much he loves me. You know, here's what it says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, elders, leaders, non-leaders, everybody, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. This is the, the ultimate thing we're to put on, in a way. The thing that stands out to me about this is that this word clothe actually is, it means tie on. So it has to do with clothing, but you might think of an apron, like tie on an apron. You tie the strings in the back. And I think Peter chooses this word because it's so deeply personal to him. Back in John 13, when Jesus is, uh, he's just finished the Passover meal. He's done communion with his disciples. It's the night that Judas is going to betray him and all of his friends are going to abandon him. And you know what Jesus does? It says after the meal, it says Jesus, knowing, knowing omnisciently, knowing that the father had given him all power and authority. What does he do? What would you do if you were given all power and authority? You know the next thing Jesus did? When Jesus knew that all the power was in his hands, he got down on his hands and knees and washed people's feet. And it says there that Jesus tied on a towel. So when Peter says, tie on humility, he's thinking of Jesus, who had all the power of the universe and yet used it to serve people who were constantly bickering among themselves about how great they were. Jesus got down on his hands and knees and cleaned their feet. And more, later, within 24 hours, he would, be, he, or he would go and be betrayed, and then he would be crucified. He would say, Peter, Peter protests. So Peter remembers this too, because in the passage, Peter protests that Jesus is serving him, saying, you can't do this. This is a lowly job. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, you have to let me go low. There's no other way for any of you to be lifted to the true heights of what life is really about. You have to let me serve you. For if you don't, you will receive nothing. If you don't let me die for you, you won't have life. If you don't let me serve you, then you won't have true power and you'll never see real servant leadership come into your world. You will never have any true lasting hope. And so Jesus does the thing that you and I can't do, which is why we keep looking to him. He tied on humility and then he shows us what it looks like and gives us the power to do it by his spirit. And so now you and I are to attempt every day to tie on the same thing he did. But we only do it because he did it first. And he did it for you in order to show his absolute care for you. That he would never even abandon us in death or sin or suffering. But he came back into the world to lead us out of it. That is our shepherd. Oh, great, how great